Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed around the rest of the world. And as ever, we've got a lot to cram in in our time together. We're going to have slightly less time than usual because I'm down in Brighton. I've got to work out how to get back. No trains. Uh, I've got the car here, actually. Uh, Having uh, done the show last night, the Christmas special at the Old Market Theatre in Brighton. Thank you all of you who came along to that. It was a really great night and um, new theatre for me. But um, yeah, I enjoyed it so much. I'm already going back in uh, April, April the 24th at the Old Market Theatre, March the 23rd at King's Place. If you're looking for Christmas presents, there's nothing better than tickets to live shows or to be more precise, my live show. Um yeah, don't buy cabaret or something like that. You know, the, 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 this is this has got it all. Um, and yeah, and at the Great Rope Tackle Art Centre uh, in March and one or two other places. So yeah, what epic Christmas presents they are. Anyway, thank you for coming there and indeed uh, King's Place the week before for our Christmas special. Uh, yeah, we yeah, feel so festive now with these Christmas specials and so much to cheer about. Yeah. Well, anyway, look, if it's okay with all of you, um, uh, what I'm going to do is reflect a bit uh, inevitably on the the strikes and the industrial turmoil um, and then turn to your some of your brilliant questions. There were loads as ever, uh, all great. Uh, I've read them all and they've triggered ideas and many of them relate to what we've been talking about over this uh, period of time. Uh, God, yeah, what a year this is turning out to be. Um, and yeah, so first of all, a kind of few reflections on the industrial turmoil, which incidentally, if all the strikes that have been threatened are uh, carried out, this will be on a bigger scale than the so-called winter of discontent in uh, 78, uh, It's really interesting. The um, iconic images from that period, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the dead unburied, uh, which was a kind of really iconic image from uh, early 79, incidentally, a very cold winter too. Uh, that was an unofficial strike in one region uh, in and around Liverpool. It wasn't a nationwide strike, and yet that beca- became a sort of defining kind of emblem of that period to the point when um, I interviewed Nick Thomas Simmons about his biography of Harold Wilson earlier this year. And I asked Nick about uh, why there is Thatcherism, Blairism, but no Wilsonism, uh, let alone Callaghanism. And he said it's it was very much to do with the framing of that seventy nine period and the triggering of eighteen years of uh, conservative rule. Um, the framing was so dark and catastrophic for those Labour figures from 74 to 79 in particular, that it was never really cited. And indeed, it became old, as in old Labour, when new Labour came in. They sort of shuffled it off to some sort of chronological divide. That was partly to do with the winter of discontent, but that was an unofficial dispute, not a nationwide one, uh, which provided the iconic image. Now we have the threat of uh, nationwide strikes on an epic scale. 
Now, obviously, you know, and there's no need to reflect on this because it is obvious. Part of the reason is inflation. When inflation begins to rage, as we've reflected on this podcast together uh, many times, governments lose control in all kinds of ways. And one of them is over the issue of pay because uh, they obsess, and this was the case incidentally with the Wilson-Callaghan governments of the 70s, uh, you know, although they did quite a few pay deals early on to stop the industrial turmoil uh, that had brought down the Heath government. But they are acutely conscious of the fact that if they agree high pay deals, it can fuel inflation, and therefore they try to resist. And in resisting, you get further industrial uh, strikes. But at the same time, the inflation means uh, that uh, union leaders get the permission uh, to trigger strike action, which causes the turmoil we're going through now. All of that is obvious. Um, and although uh, it is complex, it, it is relatively straightforward. Inflation, this is one of the, our favourite word on this podcast, consequences. But I think there are kind of deeper reasons. I was listening again to the, tr the latest transport secretary. How many of those have we had this year? Uh, Mark Harper, again on the Today programme, being vague as to the government's role uh, in the uh, industrial action on the trains. Uh, and, you know, this, apart from all the inflation and old lynchy, you know, cost of living and all the rest of it, this is the fundamental issue. I know we've discussed it many times here on the podcast, but it is worth repeating. Of course, the government has a role in uh, resolving this as a matter of principle. It is a public service, or should be. It's not in Britain, but should be, uh, to keep the trains running on time, as you want to keep the, you need to keep the hospitals open, you need to defend a country. It is as fundamental as that. But more than that, the privatisation, when it took place, was so expensive, huge levels of government subsidy were required. So the government was responsible for that money and therefore was involved in a privatised industry. But again, more than that, it's really interesting that when the arguments were made for the privatisation of the railways, most of them were utterly proved to be wrong. And they were made by the same people on the whole who then advanced Brexit. How these people have a platform when everything they say turns out to be wrong is one of the great things that will fascinate historians. It's not just a platform. They've defined policy in Britain and shaped it for decades. Now, you know, all the nonsense about this will be more efficient and uh, a better way of delivering trains for uh, Britain. I mean, all of that, it was obvious at the time, was going to be wrong because you were replacing a uh, somewhat chaotically run state monopoly with an even more chaotically run set of private monopolies. Um, and as we have discovered with other privatizations, regulation is not a substitute for competition when you give these private companies uh, a monopoly. Look at the water companies, uh, for example. And so all of that was obvious. But one argument made then, and isn't it interesting, by the way, that Thatcher didn't go near railway privatisation. Privatisation really defined her more than anything else. Uh, and she was a passionate believer in it. Uh, but uh, and, and, and incidentally, isn't it interesting, again, that her obsession with ownership and the debate about ownership 
has been wholly legitimized, whereas counter arguments about uh, public ownership are not really allowed across the political spectrum to this very day. It was her great obsession. It became it. It wasn't at the beginning. It became it. Um, But she didn't go near the railways because I think although she could be very impulsive uh, in her radicalism, uh, she could see that this was a leap too far. But anyway, they did it. And one argument I kind of believed at the time was, well, at least this will mean the end of national strikes because with different companies running different parts of the railways in different parts of the country, you could have industrial action with one train company. Uh, but that means the rest of the trains would be running. And after the 70s, you thought, oh, yeah, you know, where there were endless national rail strikes. Yeah, there maybe there's something in that. Well, of course, there isn't. Uh, because A, the government's involved. So it becomes a national issue. And B, uh, such is the sort of scale of discontent, I think, beyond the issue of pay which is a complicated one, as many have commentated on. Some in the industry are well paid, some are not. Uh, Some uh, working conditions absolutely need modernising and uh, addressing. Uh, There can be no argument for uh, any forms of inefficiency. And isn't it absurd that the whole structure of the railways isn't based on seven-day working? It's based on the idea that people will come in as, you know, if they want to, to run the trains on a Saturday and Sunday to earn a bit more money. It's absurd. You know, if you look at, I don't know, any other seven-day operation, the BBC, for example, which um, is uh, has insane layers of manage- managers and issues about responsibility and accountability, but they don't cancel bulletins on a Saturday and Sunday because of staff shortages. You know, the system is run on the assumption that news bulletins will be required seven days a week. The trains aren't. All of that needs sorting out. The problem of who is in control of what, as we've discussed many times uh, on this podcast, makes industrial action a thousand times worse than when it was under one company, um, as it's turned out. Uh, Because you can get to a situation where the train companies are close to an agreement, they have to go back to the government, the government uh, which has every right to intervene. The issue is not that its capacity to intervene should be intervening more, but it's pretense that it's not doing so when it is. So you, you're trying to get somewhere there, then network rail comes in and it says, oh yeah, we're close to a deal, it takes it back to the government and I'm told Sunak himself vetoed one possible settlement. And I don't know, train specialists I speak to say that you just need to decouple the issue of reform and just deal with the pay issue, get that sorted, get them back to work and then deal with the reform issue. But coupling the two together makes an agreement almost impossible when so many parties are involved. But you see, this is, I think, you know, obviously it's about pay and cost of living and that's the most fundamental thing, of course. But I'm sure the fact that so many are doing this at the same time goes beyond that, you know, and it's part of this fractured system. So no one is sure who they should feel a commitment to the employees. Uh, You know, there are some great employees on these trains. Um, I mentioned, you know, when I talked about my chaotic train journey back from 
Newcastle, where on a split ticket I had to change at Doncaster and miss the connection by three minutes. And the train staff were great trying to persuade the other train to wait for three minutes so we could all get on. They failed uh, because of the chaos of the way things were organised. Uh, but they were trying to almost defy the system which, within which they are working. And so I don't think there is a kind of sense of purpose and commitment in the same way when you're not entirely sure who you are committed to. And there is suspicion with some of these train companies that have been so inefficiently run in some cases when they propose reforms, because why should you trust them on those uh, when they have proven to be unreliable on so many other issues so so it's kind of mistrust in a fractured system as well as the fact that it's not clear who is ultimately responsible uh, that i think uh, fuels these strikes and the same to some extent with um you know the nurses strike i mean i think uh, labor are right uh, to say openly that they could not accept a 17% pay rise. And I think one of the responsibilities of the unions is to step back a bit. And they didn't do this in the 70s, and they're not doing that now, and say, look, how, uh, you know, we, we think this is what our members should get and deserve. Um, but how's it going to be paid for? You know, in the trains, is it going to be higher fares? That tends to be the way in Britain, because a subsidy to provide a proper service is seen as a bit sinful, even though the inefficiencies in our structure means the subsidy has to be much higher just to provide all the mediating agencies, etc., uh, with the necessary funds. Does Mick Lynch want the pay rises to be paid for from higher fares when the fares are already as high as they are? Um, how, when, uh, I mean, the nurses have got one really powerful argument beyond uh, the fact that uh, there is wide recognition of the incredibly hard, demanding work that they do. And that is, there's a chronic shortage. People are leaving the profession. So on a kind of free market basis, and this Rishi Sunak worships at the altar of the free market in his kind of Goldman Sachs framing, you know, you, you put up the pay to get the people in because there's a demand for work. But Again, it still raises the issue, how's it going to be paid for? And this gets to an even more fundamental issue, which I think I raised uh, maybe even last week, but I think it's the most insightful comment of any politician since 1945. And it came when Roy Jenkins said, the problem with Britain is that people want European levels of public services and US levels of taxation. And until there is an honest debate about what we want from the public realm, how we get it, how we pay for it, how we find the labour to uh, fill the many, many vacant posts. There is going to be more of this uh, kind of uh, industrial chaos. So these are kind of much deeper issues uh, than uh, the obvious ones. And uh, in addressing these deeper themes, we need a government who doesn't regard planning for the medium to long term as a kind of sin, you know, because it's, it's not about the markets responding to the immediate uh, government planning has gone out of fashion. It's very interesting. It, it's, it sounds so dated to cite the 1945 uh, Labour government. But what they did was revive the idea that to plan was virtuous. Um, now, you can 
debate the way they did it, but there were clear plans in place for the medium to long term. And they were planning how an economy would work. And there's got to be a plan about how you uh, find the people to fill the vacancies, how you fund the inevitable increases uh, in uh, pay and the overall cost of pay if more people are filling the post. There'll be more people needing paychecks. So I don't know whether we're ever going to get that sort of grown-up debate uh, in uh, Britain. Uh, The theme of last week's podcast, for those of you who missed it, was about um, the nightmarish tax and spend debate in Britain before an election, which kind of wipes out the possibility of any grown-up debate on the media at all. Uh, But without it, we are, how can I put this technically, buggered how about that um anyway now let's um go over to your uh questions if it's uh okay with all of you the address is uh, of course steve rick 14 at icloud.com and let's begin with um the legend that is tim bale author, academic, and much more besides. Uh, And Tim has written in to say, I know we like to talk about the deep undercurrents and forces that shape British politics. Yeah, that is a kind of, that's the aim of this uh, rock and roll politics cooperative. But can you ponder something supposedly more trivial? It's this. Is one of Rishi Sunak's problems, and actually one of Keir Starmer's too, his voice and delivery? It's reedy, even slightly camp. It's easy to dismiss this as superficial nonsense. I'm tempted to do so myself sometimes. But I do wonder if it contributes to his overall lack of authority. Yeah, well, you see, I think this is a really interesting theme and not actually uh, trivial. Uh, And it's it's overlooked. You know, there's a lot of talk about the way leaders look, the way they uh, dress more with women, but not exclusively so but virtually nothing about the voice. I know, you know, every now and again, you get things about how Thatcher had voice training and got her voice deeper. But on the whole, you don't. But I think the voice in any kind of public arena is the key to uh, explaining, in many cases, the appeal of someone. It's interesting, you know, if you sort of take some of those who can hold an audience in Britain, say someone like Tony Blair. Now, it's not a kind of uh, naturally musical voice. None of these people have actually voices where, you know, the kind of deep musicality and so on. Um, but there is a musicality to it in, in, in ways that are unexpected. And I find uh, Tony Blair quite often, not always, but quite often, can sort of utter a banality. And yet it, the voice that, that makes it sound compelling Uh, because there is a musicality to the voice. So he can say things like, look, you know, the way through this, right, is technology. What does that mean? But the way he speaks utterly draws you in. You know, he sometimes says things like, look, you know, it's not about the means, it's about the ends in politics, right? You know, well, the whole essence of politics is a debate about the means. You know, the whole debate about getting economic growth, that's the end, which all the parties are seeking because we don't have growth in this country. 
but the means to get it is the essence of the debate. So, it's, you know, the, there are sometimes banalities, but but he is an utterly compelling voice. I listen to every interview he gives and speech he gives, partly just for the pleasure uh, of the voice. The same with Bill Clinton. And, and many of these voices are flawed. Brian Walden, some of you will remember, before he became an interviewer, was a Labour MP. He was the best or almost the best orator in the House of Commons. And yet he had a speech defect. The voice was not naturally beautiful, but somehow or other, uh, it was utterly compelling uh, listening to the voice. Tony Benn, another great orator, had a slight speech defect with, you know, with the letter S. Uh, utterly musical. Listening to him was like listening to music. And so, yeah, I think the voice is important. And Sunak is curious because uh, it's, it's a bit Blair-esque, his voice, but it's, it's an octave higher and it doesn't hold uh, an audience. And, and Keir Starmer too. When Keir Starmer uh, sometimes makes uh, uh, an argument uh, which has been modelled on Blair, he doesn't generate the same response of, oh, wow, this is both radical yet reassuring. And, you know, uh, as Blair did in his peak, and that, I think, is the voice, um, because the message is uh, similar in some respects, arguably too similar given the world we're in. So, yeah, thank you for raising uh, that, uh, Tim. I think it is interesting and important. To other questions now. Now back to um, what we were talking about just now about the railways. Uh, here's Cam Barath. So you get insider info on this podcast. Uh, and Cam says, you talked about delays on the rail network and the refusal for a service to wait three minutes. I worked in the rail sector and one of the tasks I did was to process map control room operations. Each train operating company has a department called Delay Attribution or words to that effect. Their sole purpose is, in a nutshell, to argue the toss as to who was responsible for a delay. Yeah, well, this is interesting, isn't it? Um, there is actually a kind of department in each train operating company, utterly defensive, because in this fractured system, it's very hard to identify who was responsible for what. So they clearly, I didn't know there was actually kind of departments for this. I love that. What's it? What was it uh, called? Delay attribution who's to blame not us not us let's employ people to make sure it's not us rather than to address the fundamental problem of what went wrong who was responsible and why and um, these are so fundamental but to remind us all that there is perhaps a danger of romanticizing other systems our french correspondent dominica jewel writes with reference to the abolition of small regional lines which was discussed last week in france our regional line to paris was threatened with closure a couple of years ago it was only thanks to the intervention of the mayors of towns along the line that the service was saved from abolition and there we have yet another example of how Local government is a force for good, especially in rural areas. Yeah, it's so interesting, this. You know, there, there is no equivalent uh, power houses in much of the UK. Uh, there is, of course, in London with the mayor and now in Manchester and a few other cities. That's a difference. They kept a line open. Um, and those voices are such an important counter. There was a very good tweet today hailing the fact that this is an anniversary of the contactless uh, 
ticket in London, um, 10 years old, introduced by Transport for London. And the tweeter compared this with the sort of sclerotic capacity for reform and improvement as uh, identified in the Department for Transport is hopeless um and yet here was i've mentioned it before it's my model for improving public services that mayor directly accountable for transport has to make it good or else he or she will lose uh with the best people recruited from wherever they're available to sort out transport in london uh and the the improvements have been underestimated it was hell getting around london before uh livingston introduced those reforms as the first elected mayor carried on by his successors. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. There we go. I'm going to just read a couple more because so I've got to get back. I'm sorry. Uh, there's some brilliant questions here. I'm, I'm frustrated, but I've got to uh, these bloody strikes. I've got to get find a way back uh, to from Brighton. Um, so I'm going to read this one because listen to the opening sentence from Anthony Wilson. According to my Spotify stats, I spent 2,116 minutes listening to rock and roll politics this year. I think I deserve an award. That's Anthony. But it's me saying, I'm going to say, I think I deserve an award for speaking for 2,000, maybe more than 2,116 minutes. Anyway, yeah, you definitely deserve an award, Anthony. Thank you for all the listening. Please carry on. It's going to be an epic year next year. Uh, anyway, uh, he says, uh, Anthony, I've been enjoying your comments on the celebration of the public realm recently. In that light, though I know you don't like the word, isn't it time we had a discussion about neoliberalism? Arguably, with a few minor variations over the last 30 plus years, this, in my view, misplaced belief that markets and individuals are more efficient and productive than the state and collective endeavour have brought us to the place we now find ourselves with best wishes from a freezing exeter yeah everyone is uh, talking about how freezing it is we've got mark holstock talking about being freezing and wondering whether the lib dems are going to uh, propose getting into the single market uh yeah we've got questions from matt and ben about uh, the black hole issue and how interviewers uh, deal with interviewees should deal with endless questions about black holes uh, and they're all freezing wherever they are you see the reason i'm wary of the term neoliberal is it's imprecision i don't like imprecise terms like modernization the center ground neoliberalism because they are too vague and are used too casually and with ubiquity. But beyond that, I completely agree with you, uh, Anthony, that, you know, it, it, it's one of these, again, fascinating things like, oh, yeah, privatization railway is going to be a great triumph. That the assumption that the sort of marketization of the UK um, is, is the solution when all the evidence is no growth here at all. 
we need to find new models uh, of planning and uh, a celebration of the collective endeavour. But we need to find the right agencies to do it. As I say, I keep on citing Mayor, Transport for London, massive improvements in public transport in London um, because there is a clear line of responsibility and accountability uh, and it is a, a celebration of the public realm in a way. And I'd be fascinated to hear of other ideas from all of you about how that uh, can happen. And of course, that, by the way, improves productivity. It's really interesting that with these rail strikes, you know, there are estimates saying this is going to cost the economy billions of pounds. Uh, With the implication, if we had efficient railways, uh, it would grow the economy by billions of pounds. And one of the reasons why London was a success up until uh, Brexit was the improvement of transport. People could get around more easily. Uh, It's still expensive, though I know it's not as expensive as some equivalent uh, transport systems in Manchester, Liverpool, Leeds and so on, because there they need to sort out the buses as well as totally address the appalling train services. Um, But yeah, so what other models will help provide us with an alternative to this kind of pretense that it's all being sorted out and addressed by the markets or by agencies external from government, uh, when, of course, the government, albeit in a confused way, and by the way, I think Rishi Sunak's kind of sense of being overwhelmed is in his near invisibility in this period. You know, this is a period of crisis, And we don't want this sort of actorly performance of a Boris Johnson or the eccentric contributions of a Liz Truss. But a prime minister should be absolutely at the heart of the public role here. And uh, he's nowhere to be seen. Anyway, look, if it's okay with you, I've got to get back from Brighton. But thank you so much for tuning in. Keep warm by running and baking and see you all very soon.